This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have two broadcasts from May 9th, 1941. The first is the midday news broadcast of the Mutual Broadcasting System, hosted by Cedric Foster. That is followed by the evening news from Mutual, reported by Raymond Graham Swing. Little remembered today, the Mutual System was one of the giants of radio. From entertainment characters like the Lone Ranger, Superman, and the Shadow, they were all aired over the Mutual Network, and at one time, the network had more affiliates than any of its competitors. Frequent ownership changes and financial issues kept the network from making an effort to jump into television like its top two competitors, NBC and CBS. Still, the radio version kept going with limited program all the way up until 1999. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes and offering your financial support. Your donations help us continue to produce the podcast. And thanks to those of you who've already donated. So thanks for listening, and enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. From the studios of WTHT, the broadcasting division of the Hartford Times in Hartford, Connecticut, the Mutual Network presents Cedric Foster in a news analysis of today's developments in the European war. Cedric Foster. The news out of Europe today is that the largest squadron of British bombing planes ever to raid Adolf Hitler's Third Reich struck terrific blows at Hamburg and Bremen last night, while Berlin and Emden were assaulted in what the British Air Ministry termed subsidiary attack. The official communique from London did not give the number of planes involved in the raids, but there were estimates made today in the British capital that between three and four hundred bombers and protecting fighters swung into action in the German skies. And probably the best way to describe what happened during this large-scale British attack is to quote for you directly the statement issued by the Air Ministry in London today. And this statement declares, More aircraft of the Bomber Command than ever before on a single night with incendiaries to be counted in the tens of thousands and high explosives in hundreds of tons, covered Hamburg and Bremen with fires and smoke last night. Buildings were rent and smashed, and Germany's submarine and shipbuilding yards were remorselessly bombarded and left with fires blazing in their midst. The moon and the weather favored the attack, and though it was claimed by the Germans this morning that their defenses dispersed the attack, our aircraft were, in fact, prevented neither by night fighters nor anti-aircraft barrage from streaming over both cities in a constant procession and discharging their whole load on appointed targets. Pilots' individual reports 
speak of areas a mass of flame in which it was impossible to distinguish separate fire, of terrible explosions and smoke rising to 10,000 feet, and of our most powerful bombs dropped into the heart of the raging fires. That is the end of the official communique. In Britain today, there was an immediate reaction to this gigantic raid on German cities. It was interpreted in authoritative quarters to mean that the island fortress in the North Sea is now able to carry out heavy assaults on Nazi cities because of a gradual fulfillment of Mr. Churchill's prediction of last year. Many of you may remember his 4th of June speech, transmitted to the world on shortwave radio one Sunday afternoon when the outlook was pretty grim and dark concerning Britain's ability to survive. France was almost under the heel of the conqueror. The low countries had been laid in waste and the democratic world wasn't very optimistic as it looked forwards or looked toward the future. And it was at this time that Mr. Churchill chose to address his nation and empire and the world will certainly never forget the peroration of that speech. It ranks with the greatest compositions of all time and because it exemplifies the courage and the determination of the leader of the British Commonwealth of Nations, because through it, he rallied his countrymen to their standard at a time when even the bravest and stoutest of hearts were weakening under the terrible strain of one disaster after another. I repeat his closing remarks to you now. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight on the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence of strength in the air. We shall fight on beaches. We shall fight on landing grounds. We shall fight in fields, streets, and hills. We shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it is subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, will carry on the struggle until in God's good time, the new world, with all of its power and its might, steps forth to the liberation and the rescue of the old. That was the statement of the British Prime Minister almost a year ago. And the words that he uttered have come to pass. His people are still fighting, and his island home has yet to be subjugated or starving. And the battle in the skies carried on as he said that it would be, with growing confidence of strength in the air, is now being carried with increased power away from the shores of Britain to the homes and the industrial centers of the enemy. And there is not the slightest question that Britain has been enabled to do this because of the planes and the war material which she's received from the arsenals of the United States of America. And the Air Ministry didn't give too many details of the assault last night on Germany, but in addition to Hamburg, Bremen, Emden, and Berlin, there were other cities attacked which weren't named in northwestern Germany. Germany today admitted the severity of the attack. The Nazis stated that no bombs were dropped on their capital city of Berlin, but they declared that many civilians were killed in Bremen and Hamburg and other northwestern towns. At Hamburg and Bremen, the Nazis admitted what they termed some industrial damage but they asserted that the residential sections of the two cities were the worst sufferers from the raid. While the Royal Air Force strafed Germany, the Nazis were causing havoc in the British Isles once more last night, particularly at the city of Hull on the northeast coast of England. Germany said that the entire city was clouded in smoke and ringed with fire, and this was the second successive night that the Germans have struck at this seaport, and the report from Berlin regarding the damage done is correct because the British admitted last night that the city was badly hurt. Scores of business blocks had been demolished as well as homes, and the Germans used bombs of tremendous power. One explosive, according to British reports, dropped in the center of a residential street 
and the force of the explosion was so great that it leveled every house in a city block. The German report of last night's raid on Hull quoted Nazi flyers as declaring that the flames from the burning seaport could be seen a distance of 70 miles. In discussing the British attack on Germany last night, the Nazis said that British planes roared on past Berlin to dip their wings over German-occupied Poland at the city of Posen. And this flight is the longest or one of the longest ever made by British bombers because in order to reach that section of Poland and return to Britain, the RAF pilots had to guide their planes for more than 1,200 miles. In the Middle East today, Britain announced that she'd virtually completed the destruction of the Iraqi Air Force by direct hits on planes which were on the ground at two Iraqi landing fields. At the same time, it was announced that whatever troops the Iraqi army had used in the assault on the British airfield at Lake Habaniya, these had been withdrawn to the towns of Ramadi and Fallujah, and this withdrawal, of course, was under fire. The Iraqis have steadfastly refused to accede to the British demands that they cease their attack on Habaniya. Cairo reports in connection with the campaign in Iraq that the British transported by heavy air howitzers from Egypt, or they transported heavy air, air, air howitzers from Egypt, and with these they routed the native troops of Rashid Ali. And the pursuit of these troops, according to Cairo, is now going on north and northeast of the Habaniya airport. And when the Iraqis abandoned their positions, the British said, they left large stores of war material which the Empire forces are now salvaging. In the vicinity of Basra, down on the Persian Gulf, quiet prevailed, according to the Cairo communique, while on the North African front at both Tobruk and Saloum, heavy sandstorms prevented the British and the British enemies from swinging into action. In the Western Mediterranean yesterday, the Italians said this morning that there was a heavy engagement between fascist planes and units of the British fleet which were guarding a large Allied convoy. Rome claims that 16 British planes were lost in the battle and that in addition to this, torpedoes and bombs struck an aircraft carrier two cruisers, a destroyer, and three merchantmen as Italian aircraft roared to the attack. The battle, according to Rome, started late yesterday afternoon, and it went on into the hours of darkness. Rome declared that five Italian planes were lost. The Italians didn't say that any British ships had been sunk, but they stated that repeated hits were made on the naval vessels which were escorting the merchantmen. The British have yet to make any report on this engagement. The Admiralty in London, however, did send out cheering news to its fighting forces today when it reported the destruction of a German raider which was operating in the Indian Ocean. The ship was believed to have been the transatlantic liner Hansa, with a registry of more than 21,000 tons. The Admiralty's report of the battle, which gave but few details, said that the British cruiser Cornwall took 27 British merchantmen, or British merchantmen seamen, from the raider, where they had been held as prisoners by the Nazis. And in addition to these men, 53 members of the raiders' crew were also picked up by the Cornwall. What happened to the others hasn't been announced, but it was thought that the normal complement of the raider was at least 300 sailors. Naval circles in London said today that the Hansa, which is well-known or was well-known in the transatlantic trade before the war, probably carried six, five-point nine-inch guns, 
several torpedo tubes, and also mine-laying equipment. The speed of the ship was at least 19 knots. The Soviet Union today informed the ministers of Yugoslavia, Norway, and Belgium that they no longer have any official standing in Moscow. And after receiving this information, the representatives of these three countries, now under German domination through force of arms, prepared to leave the Russian capital. The news of Stalin's decision was telephoned to Berlin for transmission from the German capital to the outside world. But the moment that a correspondent declared on the telephone during the actual conversation that the Russian move was understood in diplomatic circles in Moscow to indicate that the Soviet is planning closer cooperation with Germany, the moment that this statement was made, the telephone line was cut. Now, this action on the part of the Soviet is the second official act of importance which has taken place since Joseph Stalin came out in the open to assume the premiership of the nation, which he's ruled as a dictator with an iron hand for many years. The first official move was a statement by TASS, Russian news agency, that the Soviet was not concentrating troops along the German frontier and that she has no intention of doing so. As far as Russia is concerned, there are two widely divergent points of view on her policy. And one view is that she's a sub-Rosa partner of Adolf Hitler and that she will work hand in glove with the Axis powers. And the other is that she's putting her house of diplomacy in order and that she's determined to defend her interests in the Middle East. You may take your choice as to which you wish to believe. There are strong arguments on both sides. But when you've argued pro and con, you still come back to Mr. Churchill's definition of Russia. The British Prime Minister characterized her some time ago as a riddle wrapped in mystery inside of an enigma. Propaganda is one of the most powerful and potent forces in the war which is going on in Europe. And Germany makes full use of it. And she has stated from the lips of her leader, Adolf Hitler, that in order to conquer people, you must keep on repeating lies until those people believe them. And Germany today gave concrete evidence of her lying ability when she broadcast a report which referred to the communist newspaper in New York, which is the Daily Worker, as the representative of American labor. The German radio declared, and now I quote directly from the radio, the American labor paper, New York Daily Worker, publishes an editorial dealing with the latest incendiary speech of War Secretary Stimson. The labor paper in its editorial points out that the American labor movement hates war. The Stimson speech, the New York newspaper remarks, was the storm signal in preparation for the next step when Roosevelt will push the button and set off the war explosion. The New York Daily Worker urges the American nation to take an open stand against these war machinations before it would be too late. That is the end of the German radio broadcast. Well, there's no doubt that the millions of American laboring people will be most interested to know that Germany has stated that the communist newspaper in New York is their representative. No more outspoken, deliberate lie has ever been uttered by authoritative German quarters. 
The statement is a perfect example of Adolf Hitler's policies being put into action. Mutual has presented Cedric Foster an analysis of the news out of Europe today. Mr. Foster, speaking from the studios of WTHT, the Hartford Times in Hartford, Connecticut, is heard over most of these stations every day, Monday through Friday, at this same time. Cedric Foster is also heard Sundays at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. More men have enjoyed White Owl than any other cigar ever made in the United States. This very night, May 9th, back in 1862, the ironclad monitor was battling away in Hampton Roads. Indeed, that little monitor, that cheese box on a raft, was driving a final nail into the coffin of every fleet in the world. Raymond Graham Swick. Good evening. There is plenty of military news tonight, but probably the most important battle being fought at this moment is for the soul of the Vichy government. Admiral Darlon, Vichy's anti-British vice premier, left Vichy for Paris tonight after having failed to see Marshal Pétain. One report has it that the aged head of the French state is ill, that this is not confirmed, and all that is certain is that Darlon went back without having seen him and will renew his talks with Hitler's envoy in Paris, Herr Abbott. At the same time, the Vichy ambassador in Washington, after a conference with Assistant Secretary Wells, announced that the United States government has agreed to send two shiploads of wheat each month to France so long as the Vichy policy remains unchanged. But Henriet, the ambassador, put the situation too precisely, according to Secretary Hull, who told his press conference that no final agreement on this subject has been reached. The United States, he said, may send more wheat to unoccupied France soon, but he emphasized that the deal hinges on certain considerations which he did not specify, but which it can be assumed are that Vichy, in its collaboration with Germany and Italy, does not give direct or indirect military aid in the war on Britain. The German-controlled Paris newspaper Le Ton sums up the position by saying that Vichy must choose between its friendship for the United States and collaboration with Germany. Darlon has already carried discussions with the Germans to the, point of a, to the point of agreement on three lesser concessions. One, to open the frontier between the two French zones for the passage of goods and food. The others making it easier for persons and the males to cross the border. He also held out hope of getting the cost of occupation reduced by $2 million a day. He has concealed what it is that Vichy has promised to do in exchange. Darlon, it should be remembered, favors collaboration with Germany. He's the one who ordered a French convoy and French land batteries to fire on British ships, which were examining French freighters recently. And he has been trying to demonstrate to the Germans that he is as apt a man as Laval to serve their interests. But he is not the one to make the final decision that rests with Pétain. 
It may be that Darlan hopes to reach a settlement with Germany, which not only will cut the costs of occupation, but will bring home to France the two million prisoners being detained in Germany as a kind of hostage, which Hitler holds from almost every family in France. He also wants to get French industry running again, which obviously can't produce unless Germany supplies the raw materials to some extent and takes the greater part of the output. But a German spokesman in Paris, quoted today, says he doubts that the Germans will make final peace with Vichy at this time. Why should it, he asked, when things are going well? If peace were made, Germany would lose its ability to bring pressure on France. It is reported that one of the German demands is that Axis troops should have the right of transit through France and French territory and the use of bases in North Africa, Syria, and Dakar. At this stage of the war, these concessions would have an enormous effect on Hitler's chances of success in the Mediterranean and the Battle of the Atlantic. Even the admission of German civilians to Morocco, for instance, might lead to intrigues with a population which could shatter such strength as General Begon has left. North Africa is a vital strategic position, and here the United States government is making an attempt to bolster up Begon. It is preparing, belatedly, to start trade between French North Africa and the United States, which would at least bring to this country some cargoes, which Germany has been getting, and would be paid for with supplies which Begon needs to maintain his military and economic strength. I should add that Ambassador Henriet said today that the food America would send to France would be distributed by the Red Cross and that the British have agreed to pass it through the blockade. The British tonight published their shipping losses for the month of April. The total is 488,000 tons, the highest figure for any month of the war. It goes without saying that it is high because of the loss of shipping in and around Greece and of the 43 Allied vessels sunk of 189,000 tons, a large share can be assumed to be Greece. The actual British losses are 60 ships of 293,000 tons. The figures are higher than those for February 1917, when Germany launched unrestricted submarine warfare. In that year, the losses mounted until they reached a figure in April of 852,000 tons. The British Ministry of Information issued the figures today instead of waiting until Tuesday because of the controversy which has arisen over the figures of Admiral Land of the Maritime Commission, which the British insist give a totally false picture, which, according to a statement from the White House tonight, were not compiled from official and secret information, but largely from newspaper reports. The British said that a grave danger exists that unless shipping losses are reduced, Britain's war effort and morale are likely to suffer for lack of food. No use could be made either of tanks or airplanes if food supplies failed, said the British statement. And this is the clearest British intimation in public that the British food supply is in some danger. Between three and four hundred British bombers last night gave Hamburg and Bremen a full exposition of what such cities as Plymouth, Bristol, and Liverpool have been experiencing from Göring's Luftwaffe. 
It was Britain's greatest air effort of the war. And the German cities were systematically punished, in part by the new extra-destructive British bomb. Berlin and Emden had lesser range. Nearly a thousand tons of bombs were dropped on German objectives, a, fig a figure comparable to the great German raids. The British are gratified by the rising efficiency of their defense against night bombers. So far in May, they have brought down 86 German bombers. It is not clear how many of these are victims of the mystery night interceptor planes with their eyes that see in the dark, and how many can be attributed to the bright moonlight. But the British public hopes there is a chance that the Nighthawks may put a stop to large-scale night bombing by making it too costly, just as the daylight raiding was made too costly last fall. The British were able to announce the sinking in the far east of the German raider Hansa, the former Hamburg-American passenger liner, equipped with half a dozen 5.9-inch guns and torpedo tubes. In Iraq, the signs all point to an early collapse of Rashid Ali Bey, barring one incalculable possibility that Hitler sends him military help, perhaps by air from the Greek islands, where parachutists are known to be assembled. But it looks as though the conspiracy of the Axis in Iraq had been mistimed. It is too soon to say so definitely. When the British landed their troops at Basra, they may have forced Rashid's hand. Anyhow, this may be the second Axis miscalculation, the second out of the last two master intrigues, the first being Yugoslavia. For though Yugoslavia has been crushed, it must be remembered that the Hitler plan was to take it by diplomacy, and his own ambassador failed to judge the safety of the game, and he involved his master in the vast cost of an invasion. To pronounce come from Moscow today, which give a little insight into the core of Soviet Union foreign policy. One is a denial by the TASS agency of reports that the Soviet Union is placing on its western frontiers, especially along the Balkans and the Caspian Sea, forces which are being withdrawn from the Far East. Still more significant is the notification to the legations of Yugoslavia, Belgium, and Norway that their status in Moscow can no longer be recognized in view of the loss of sovereignty by their country. To withdraw recognition from three governments which are continuing in exile their fight against the Axis is as frank and cordial a step in aid of the Axis as the diplomatic sign language is able to contrive. This puts the Yugoslavs in particular on the spot. They were so certain of the newly shown affection of the big Slav brother that many of them took refuge in the Soviet Union, and quite a few Yugoslav pilots flew their planes to Russian airports to keep them from falling into Nazi hands. So the notice today represents a sudden reversal of Soviet policy, and coming as it does after Stalin's acceptance of the premiership, it adds some credibility to the tales that Stalin is getting ready to make a big deal with the Germans. A sign that big changes are to be expected is the result of Stalin's policy as seen in Japan. The Times Advertiser, the organ of the Japanese Foreign Office, publishes a remarkable statement about peace with China. This looks like the first fruit of the Russo-Japanese Neutrality Pact, which Stalin personally negotiated. 
The Japanese organ advises Japan to abandon efforts to crush the Chongqing government by force. It says that the scale of hostilities in China should be reduced. China must become a partner in the co-prosperity sphere. It goes on to remark that the superiority of Japanese arms has been proved, but so has the ability of China to survive corporal punishment. And the opinion is expressed that if the Japanese armies withdraw, an advance of Chiang Kai-shek's armies would not necessarily follow. It seems reasonable to believe, it adds, that a shrinkage of the Japanese fighting fronts would lead to less and less hostility. And it concludes with the statement that the presence of the Japanese army in China should be proved to be no threat to China's political and territorial integrity. The soft-spoken words of Matsuoka's mouthpiece will have an appeal for some of the men around Chiang Kai-shek. And if Stalin should whisper to Chongqing that it had better make peace, so be threatening to withdraw Russian aid if peace isn't made, the Chinese war effort might end. It hasn't yet come to pass, but it is something to watch for. Mm-hmm.